I'm very thankful to be here today. I'm especially thankful to be able to worship with you again. My history with this congregation goes back quite a long way, especially since I wasn't born in California. But this congregation supported me in the first mission work that I ever did. Too young to know what I was doing, but we did the best we could anyway. And that was at the work in Flagstaff. And even though there is no congregation in Flagstaff, there are still members of the church today that are faithful as a result of that work. And so my time with you goes back a long way, even though I have not been here uh, very often in recent days. And it's good to be with you again. It's been 30 years. And of course, there are others here that I've known and been with a long time. Uh, Denny and Carl back over at Brundage long years ago, and Terry, I don't know how many years. But anyway, it's very good to be with you and to worship with you today. I'd like to read from uh, a special psalm. At least, I think it is connected with the passage I'd like to talk about today. But before that, I want to take you back to some scenes that we imagine must have preceded, or at least something like this, preceded some events that are talked about in the gospel. It's a sick room that I want you to envision in your mind's eye. They say that the young man who is so desperately ill at this time was about 30 years of age. He was quite a young man, and this was a totally unexpected thing. This young man, I, I don't know where his parents were. They're, not, they're never on the scene. But he has a very close-knit family. He has two sisters. None of the three of them are married. And these sisters love their brother uh, dearly. And I am sure that he loved them so as well although we're not told much about that. But we do know for a fact that they loved him dearly. And here as they labor in his sick room, and as his illness becomes more and more desperate, they are beside themselves. It seems only a short while ago that he was so healthy and such a strong, vibrant young man. And here before their very eyes, he is wasting away to nothing. And finally, at almost the last instant, in fact, I suppose past the last instant, they send a message to Jesus asking him to come. They wait a long time. Too long. Shortly after the message is sent, maybe about the same time, the young man finally expires. He dies. Their hearts are broken beyond imagination. But there's no time for that just now. And so they begin to busy themselves about making preparations for the funeral. And uh, they send into town by someone, I suppose, and contact the uh, professional whalers. Even the poorest Jew was entitled to two wailing women and a rabbi for their funeral. But now these people are pretty wealthy. 
And they send into town, and there are many mourners and personal friends who come to attend to them. They prepare the young man's body almost immediately. It's a hot country, and they don't do embalming, and there's no time for delay, as decay will set in quite soon. They prepare the body for burial. They light a light beside his bed, uh, just in case his spirit is hovering near. And they begin to fast. And for the next several days they will fast. And uh, they might eat the white of an egg once or twice, but that would be all. And uh, soon all things are ready. And they lift the body on a bier and they take it to the cemetery outside of town. And... I don't know exactly what was said over this young man's body, but in all likelihood, in fact, it's a great probability that the rabbi read from the 90th Psalm. At least that was customary and it was, uh, it was the expected thing. And uh, it seems to me almost a certainty when you read the 90th Psalm in the light of these events I want to talk to you about, that this was, in fact, the passage that was read. It goes like this. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like the grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, and in the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath, and we spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet it is their strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Mark those words. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. <clears throat> As these words faded into the stillness, they would soon turn and leave the graveside and they would go back into their village. And then the sisters would have the luxury to mourn the loss of their beloved brother. But I cannot help about thinking about these words. I, like I said, I don't know. I'm not inspired. I don't know if this was the psalm read there or not. I just know that it was traditional and these words are amazing in verse 16. Let thy works appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Mark the word glory in your mind. 
These people, brokenhearted, had no idea of the unimaginable magnitude of the glory of God Almighty that they were about to be privileged to witness in their lives. This morning, I want to bring you as best I can the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. But before we do, we want to approach our Heavenly Father in a word of prayer. In John chapter 11, I would like you to notice, first of all, the specificity of the first verse. Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. The reason I call attention to this is the record concerning these women has not always been this clear. We have heard of them on two other occasions in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 10, we are introduced to them for the first time. And uh, the scripture says in Luke 10 verse 38, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house and she had a sister called Mary which sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but this one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now the interesting, well actually there's two things that are interesting about this introduction to these women. The first is that their character is revealed and is clearly maintained in all of the records about them in the scriptures. Mary is much more introspective than Martha. Mary is much more, uh, is a much quieter, uh, more thoughtful person. Now that's not to say that Mary is a better person. Jesus loved Martha as well as he did Mary, even though he did gently chide her on this occasion for being too uh, troubled about things and about preparing a meal and so on and so forth as that. But Martha is more the extrovert and she is much more practical minded than Mary is. And we shall see that again in John chapter 11. But the other thing I want you to note is that this record says there was a certain village and a certain woman. Now it does name the women, Martha and Mary, but that's like being over in Russia and talking about Boris and Oleg. You could be talking about any one of 10, uh, maybe 50 million people. Everybody's named Boris or Oleg, as far as I can tell, in Russia. Now, I'm exaggerating, but still, they were very common names is the point. And it's a certain village and uh, so on and so forth. Now, why do you suppose that is? I'll tell you why I think it is. John writes his gospel... Entire, uh, much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, near the end of the first century. You will remember in this story we're going to discuss that Lazarus is raised from the dead. And as a result of that, the Jews seek to kill Lazarus on numerous occasions. And Lazarus, being raised from the dead, of course, continued to live out his days until he either died again from 
uh, illness or age or some injury. We don't know about all of that. But the point is, until he did die, Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem very circumspect about referring to him because they have a story to tell that's vitally important, and yet they don't want to unduly expose Lazarus to danger. And so because of that, I think, uh, Luke uh, is more circumspect about who this is and just where this has happened. Now, John, writing near the end of the first century, writes the first defense of the scriptures. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. You will recognize that word. Sin means with, S-Y-N, or sympathetic, so to speak. And optic means your eye. So synoptic means they see the same. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels are very closely paralleled to one another and cover, generally speaking, the same material in, generally speaking, the same way. John's gospel is entirely different. John's gospel is written to defend what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written. Not only that, John's gospel is written to answer one of the uh, plaguing false doctrines of the early days of the church called Gnosticism, in which it was claimed that Jesus did not come to earth as a real human being, but only as an apparition that looked like a human being, but wasn't really flesh and blood. And John writes to prove that Jesus Christ was at one and the same time 100% completely, totally human and at the same time incomprehensible though it be to our finite minds, 100% totally and completely divine. And so John's gospel can be shaped either around the seven miracles that he chooses to establish the divinity of Jesus or as we shall see in this chapter, it can be shaped around the seven I am's of Jesus Christ, which is another declaration of his divinity. Now, by the time John writes this first verse, quite likely, either the pressure on Lazarus about his life has eased, he has moved away, and certainly he's very old, he may already be dead. And so he's much more specific about who this is and where it is and what town it is. Then there's another very interesting thing in the second verse. It says, It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. He further identifies this Mary about whom he is speaking as that Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. Now that's not so interesting in and of itself, but the interesting thing about it is that John doesn't record that event till the 12th chapter. Now here we are in the 11th chapter, and he already expects us to be familiar with who that Mary was. Now why do you suppose that is, or why? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think that when these men wrote these words, they knew they were writing scripture. They knew they were writing something that was to establish normalcy in doctrine, that was normative and going to be normative for all time. And when John writes this, he expects you as a child of God to already be thoroughly familiar with Mary and Martha and Lazarus because surely you have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke many times and have met these women on many occasions. And so he says, it was that Mary. 
There's another possibility, and it's even a little more intriguing. It's possible that John writes, it was that Mary whom he does not mention until the 12th chapter because, lo and behold, he expects you to read his gospel more than once. And when you get around to the 11th chapter the second time, he expects you to be familiar with what he already said in the 12th chapter. Either way you look at it, the point is the same. John clearly expects the people of God to be a people of the Word of God. He expects them to be familiar with the Word of God. He expects the things of the Word of God to have already lodged in their hearts so that he can just say, it was that Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus and you and all of the rest of the Christian system will know who he's talking about. It says, therefore... His sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. This is interesting because it is the only account of anyone outside of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John who is specifically stated to be loved by Jesus. It's not that he didn't love everyone, but it's a great honor to be spoken of as the one whom he loved. They sent this message Jesus got the message, and in verse 4, Jesus immediately sent that messenger back with a return message and said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. I used to think this was sort of an editorial comment inserted here, or that Jesus simply announced this to his disciples upon hearing this messenger. I don't think that. Because later on in this chapter, he says, didn't I send you a message saying that you would see the glory of God? And so this messenger has come to Jesus. Now Jesus and his disciples, according to John 10, 40 and 41, has left Jordan. Uh, He has gone away beyond Jordan unto the place where John at first baptized. And uh, he's about a day's journey away. And uh, so he sends the messenger back. But then, lest you misunderstand, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He does not want you to think that he is ignoring his friend or that he does not love them. It's stated very clearly. But when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And then after, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. This brings up a question. Jesus sends this messenger back and he says you will see the glory of God. This sickness, he says, is not unto death. But you will see the glory of God. And yet, he stays here two whole days. Has Jesus, is he just uh, playing around with Lazarus' life? Is he the sort of person that would allow his friend to simply languish and die and his sister's hearts to be broken when he could have gone there and done something about it? I think that's too hasty a conclusion. If you think about this a moment, I'm sure you know this story. If it took the man a day to travel to where Jesus was to bring the message and it took him a day to go home, It's a day's journey away. So he comes in a day, 
Jesus abides there two days, and then Jesus goes where Lazarus was. That's four days. And when Jesus goes out to the cemetery, what did Martha say? It had been four days. And the conclusion is this. Either Lazarus was already dead when the messenger came and Jesus knew that, which is entirely possible. He is divine, and that's part of the teaching of the story. Or he was nearly dead, and Jesus knew that. Anyway, he waits two days and he says, let's go see into Judea again to see him. And his disciples protest immediately and they say, Master, the Jews of late have sought to stone thee and goest thou thither again? Now he's, they are referring to what happened over there in John chapter 10 when Jesus was among the Jews in that place and he said to them, among other things, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him, and Jesus said, Many good works have I done among you. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for doing good works. We're stoning you because you said that God is your father and that you and God are one. And Jesus said, is it not written in your law? Ye are gods. It is written in their law. It didn't mean quite the same thing as what he's saying. But nevertheless, that is what the Bible says. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent unto the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I'm the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do the works, but if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in him and I in him. What he's having reference to is the miraculous power that he has demonstrated among them so abundantly. And what he's saying is the same thing Nicodemus said. What he's saying they should do is the same thing Nicodemus said when he said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do the things you do except God be with him. Or... He's appealing to the same thing that the man who was born blind, who had received his sight, said when they said, when they said, this man cannot be from God. He said, well, it's amazing to me. I was blind and now I see. And we know that God does not hear sinners. By the way, he's not really talking about prayer there although Christians do have a special praying relationship with God that others don't have, but he's not talking about prayer. What he means is, we know that God doesn't answer uh, a man's request to perform a miracle if he's a sinner. You know that and I know that. That's what Jesus is appealing to right here. Anyway, they went their way, but they, they took their anger in their hearts with them and sought another opportunity to kill him. And so Jesus left and went beyond Jordan. And that's why his disciples say, Lord, 
We don't want to go back over there. You don't want to go back over there. They were just of late trying to kill you over there. And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not because he seeth the light of the world. If any man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there's no light in him. I'm not sure I understand all I know about that passage right there. But I think all that Jesus is saying is the same thing he said over in chapter 9 verse 4 when he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. I, th I think he's simply saying uh, nothing, uh, nothing uh, mysterious here. He's just saying you have to work while you have opportunity. The time is coming when it'll be dark and you can't work in the dark. You guys are all painters and uh, you can't paint stuff in the dark. You have to be able to see what you're doing. Well, that's all Jesus is saying. I need to work at my ministry while there's an opportunity. Now, by the way, just a side note, this is free. Uh, Christians need to pay attention to this. Sometimes Christians spend so much time talking about what it is they want to do that it gets to be night and no one has done it. And there comes a time when it's time to quit talking and get out there and do something for the Lord. Anyway, I think that's what Jesus is saying right here. These things said he, and after that he saith unto him in his next argument, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And they don't want to give up. They said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll do better. Well, Jesus was trying to be nice about it and use a euphemism, but he goes on to say, well, he's dead. He's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. By the way, when the scripture speaks of death as sleep, it's not a reference to the spirit, the eternal part of man. The eternal part of man does not sleep. Not after physical death, not before physical death. It does not sleep. It remains conscious. It goes back to God who gave it. It's talking about the sleep of appearance. It's talking about what the body looks like when the spirit leaves and goes back to God. It looks like it's asleep. And that's why Jesus uses that language and the rest of scripture too for that matter. Well anyway... Thomas says, Thomas called Didymus, said, well, let us go uh, that we may die with him. Just a word about Thomas as we pass through here. Uh, first of all, why do you suppose Thomas is the one speaking here? I thought Peter was the one who always had his mouth in motion before his brain got in gear. And uh, a lot of scholars believe that Peter, James, and John are not here on this occasion for that very reason. Hardly anybody could be quicker on the draw to say something than Peter, whether he knew what he was saying or not. But Thomas speaks up. And I, I want to point out something to you. I think Thomas has taken a bum rap over the years. You know, he's known famously as Doubting Thomas because he said, except I see the print of the nails in his hand and I thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so people have uh, said he was doubting. <clears throat> but uh, did you know that none of the disciples believed in Jesus till they saw him? The tales of those women seemed to them as but idle tales. And they all refused to believe until they saw Jesus. So 
Uh, let's take it easy on Thomas. Thomas is an apostle of Jesus Christ, as faithful and loyal as any of them, even though we don't know about his works. Well, anyway, Thomas said, well, if he's, let, let's go. If he's going to go, we'll go with him. If he dies, we'll die with him. One of the most impressive statements to me in my years preaching was I, I remember a time back in West Virginia when Linwood was coming for a meeting every year. And uh, this particular year, he had been quite sick. And Ivy and Agnes were just beside themselves and did not want him to go. And they were arguing to him that he needed to call and cancel the meeting. He was not able to go up there or not. And finally, he told me when he could talk, he finally said, Listen, listen, this is what I do. And I'm going up there and I'm going to preach that meeting the best I can. And if I die, I die. That's pretty impressive to me. And I thought he was going to right there in my house. But he didn't. And we're thankful for that. Well, that's the way Thomas is right here. Loyal to Jesus, even to the point of death. Then when Jesus came and found that he had laid in the grave four days already, laying in the grave four days. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. I don't think Martha is asking for Jesus to raise her brother from the dead because she doesn't understand it when Jesus promises to do that very thing. I think that she is simply saying, Lord, in spite of this great tragedy which has broken our hearts, in spite of the fact that if you had been here, he would not have died, we still love you and we are still loyal to you and we are still faithful to what you have taught us. I think that's probably something like what she's saying here. The message, the messenger came and said, this sickness is not unto death, but so that you can see the glory of God the message has been all forgotten. Of course it's been forgotten. By the time the messenger got back, Lazarus was dead. And the message, if it was ever even heard, has simply passed into oblivion and she doesn't remember it. But isn't that interesting what she said? Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. How many times do you suppose... Those two women who loved Jesus with all of their hearts. How many times do you suppose in those last few days they had said, Oh, if only Jesus was here. If only he would come. It's certainly a measure of their faith and gives us a check on our own. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. It zipped right over her head. Martha said, yes, Lord, I know he will rise again in the resurrection. She means the general resurrection. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She doesn't know what he's talking about. And she's really not prepared to consider all this right now. She said, hey, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She doesn't really answer his question. And it doesn't really register to her yet what he's saying. But when he said this, by the way, this is one of the key passages in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. If you search the Gospel of John, you will find seven of these great I am's of Jesus. I don't know if I can name them all right now, but you can look them up if I can't. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the one I couldn't remember a while ago. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine and ye are the branches. And here I am the resurrection and the life. What's so significant is about this is you will remember in the Old Testament back over there in the land of Midian where Moses has fled from Egypt and has dwelt for 40 years and now has a family and is herding his sheep, he sees that bush that is on fire but will not burn up and says to himself, I must turn aside and see this bush. This is a curious thing. And he turns aside and the voice says, Moses, Moses, put off thy shoes from off thy feet for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. And the voice said, I want you, Moses, to go back to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses said, in my own inelegant translation, are you talking to me? Now, I tried that once, and it didn't work. I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. I will, I will give you help. He casts his rod down, it becomes a serpent. He takes it again, he sticks his hand in his, in his cloak, and he takes it out, it's leprous. He puts it back in at God's instruction, it's renewed. God said, I'll give you power. Uh, he said, I, I can't do this. Who will I say sent me? And God said, you tell them that I am who I am hath sent you. The great I am, the Jehovah God. Did you know that Jesus is Jehovah? Now the Father and the Son are not the same person. But the word Jehovah is a word like God. You know, Jesus Christ is God. The Father is God. They're both Jehovah also. And in John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Jews, Ye are of your father the devil. You are liars from the beginning like he was. And they said, that wasn't so. And uh, so it goes on in this discussion. And he says, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast the devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never die. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And of the prophets are dead, and whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father which honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him. And keep his saying, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it 
And he was glad and then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. How hast thou seen Abraham? And he said, Verily, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus says in John chapter 11, just like all those other places, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is stating his divinity. He is God in the flesh. You keep that in mind when you think of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies physically, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never, never, never die. In the Greek. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I know you're the son of God. And she goes back into the house to alert her sister that Jesus has come. And as soon as Mary hears that, she rises from her knees and she flees to where Jesus is outside of the town, probably standing near the cemetery. The reason I think that is because that's where they thought she was going. And when she reaches Jesus, she says to him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. The very same words her sister said. Oh, how they loved Jesus and how they trusted in him. The Bible says that these mourners followed her out there. And uh, it says that um, when they followed her out there, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her and he groaned in spirit and was troubled. This means actually, literally, this word is most often translated, he was angered in his spirit. I suspect that this is because of the hypocrisy of these professional mourners. Jesus had absolutely no patience with people who pretended to be something that they were not. When it goes on to say, uh, he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. It goes on to say, Jesus wept. This is an entirely different word in the Greek. And it means he wept silently. It means tears coursed down his cheeks, but he did not groan out loud. The Bible says he groaned within himself. The Bible does say that when our beloved ones depart, that we sorrow not as others who had no hope. But it doesn't say we do not sorrow. Jesus sorrowed here even though he knew what he was about to do because of the suffering of those around him and because he loved this man. And they said, see how he loved him. Don't you suppose if he had been here, he who gave sight to the blind, don't you suppose he could have done something about this? They murmured such things as he walked to the grave. They came to the graveside and Jesus said, take ye away the stone. And Martha, ever the practical one, said, wait, 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 Lord, behold, it's been four days. He's stinking by now. Now listen, what's about to happen here is different from any other resurrection of the dead that has ever occurred to this time. When Elijah raised that boy from the dead, he grew up, became a man, and got old, and he died. Unless something happened to him before that. But the point is, he was only physically raised. 
And when Elijah, Elisha raised that boy from the dead, he was hardly yet cold. Elisha laid himself on the boy three times and raised him from the dead. When they threw that man's body into that cave and he landed on Elisha's bones, the man was hardly dead, but he stood up to life immediately. When Jesus raised the uh, son of the widow of Nain, it was the same day that he died. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, uh, rigor mortis hadn't even set in yet. This man has been dead. He has been buried. He has been in the grave four days and already his body is decaying. That's the point. Each resurrection Jesus performs is mightier than the one before it until the mightiest one of all. And Jesus said to her, Did I not send you a messenger? Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Remember that psalm about the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people, just a side note again, he said because of the people, sometimes we need to say what's going on, not necessarily for the benefit of the one that is happening to, but because of the people, so they will know what's going on. Anyway, Jesus said, but because of the people, which stand by, I said it, that thou may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And don't you know, it was dead silent. He's lost his mind, they must have thought. And then a rustling. And if it weren't so serious, it might almost be humorous. If he was wrapped up in that grave like he usually was, or they usually were, he was, his legs were wrapped together and quite likely he came hopping to the grave door. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Don't you know that they all fell down and worshiped the Son of God and gave glory to His everlasting name and His holy power as the Son of God? Nope. That's what's so interesting about this story. It goes on to say, many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on Him. Yes, there were many who were converted by Jesus act on this very occasion but some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done and then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said what do we do this man does great miracles and if we let him keep on doing this everybody's going to believe in him and we can't have that and the high priest spoke up and said you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. 
Isn't it incredible? Isn't it incredible how that such a wicked man as Caiaphas speaks forth so boldly the word of God and has absolutely no idea what he's saying, nor the fulfillment of it. And from that very occasion, the death plot was hatched. Now the point I don't want you to miss is this. You see, belief in Jesus and Christianity, it's always about choosing. It's always about what you decide. It's always about how you look at it. Because you see, two people can see the very same things and hear the very same words and see the very same power of God and one of them falls humbly at the feet of Jesus and worships him with all of his heart and gives God the glory that is due to his name and becomes a child of God, obedient to his will. And the other one goes and says to the Pharisees, if you let this keep happening, everybody's going to believe in him. We can't have that. And it happens over and over again. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, about verse 14, I think, he said, we are an aroma of Jesus Christ. A savor, I think the King James Bible says. We are the aroma of Jesus Christ. And we preach the gospel. And to one, we are the aroma of life unto life. And to the other, we are the smell of death unto death. Same sermon. Smells like death to one person and life to another. Why do you suppose that is? That's because God's done all for you he's going to do. He sent you his only begotten son who willingly came here and proved beyond doubt that he was divine. On this occasion... He proved that he is the resurrection and the life. And now you must decide what you are going to do about that. You can believe in Jesus. You can accept his will. You can allow him to be in charge of your life. You can take the word of God and you can treasure it up in your mind. You can obey it. You can live by it. Be forgiven of your sins. Declared righteous by God. And you, in spite of your worthless self, can go to heaven. And be with God forever and ever and ever. Or, you and Frank Sinatra can keep on doing it your way. And you'll die and burn in hell. But you can do it if you want to. So, what about you? What is your response to the glory of God? If you're not a Christian today, you need to become one. You can do that. You can believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to know anything else except that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you're a sinner and that if you believe in Him, you can be forgiven.
You need to repent of your sins. Make a decision not to serve sin anymore. Confess, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God before this great audience. And allow yourself to be immersed in water and your sins are washed away in a moment by the grace and mercy of God. And you are declared righteous. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.